Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. Receive this with faith and with love. This is the word of God for us tonight. Thus says the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for, there was no place for them in the inn. On April 26, 1986, Cliff Robinson opted for a quick breakfast in the break room before beginning his workday. To brush his teeth afterwards, he had to go to the changing room, which happened to be in the secure area of his workplace, Sweden, Sweden's Forsmark nuclear power plant. This route, having to go through the secured area, forced him to pass through a radiation scan before returning to his office. It was then and there that Cliff stay and world history, why not, turned a hard left when the alarm went off, having detected radioactive dust on his feet. The radiation on his, on his shoes were so high that Forsmark higher-ups immediately mandated a full-on, full-scale evacuation. Cliff sensed something was off. Since he did not even come close to the active areas of the plant, so he stayed behind to investigate, and the lab analysis on his shoe confirmed his instincts. The elements found in his shoe were not native to Forsmark. They had to have come from another facility. Did someone detonate a bomb? And we don't know, he thought. A quick analysis of the wind's trajectory that day pointed the source, the possible source of that radioactive material to an Ukrainian plant nearly a thousand miles away. They immediately rang Moscow up, who downplayed the situation with an offhand, no, we're good, stop asking or face consequences. And only after Sweden threatened to inform the International Atomic Energy Authority, the Soviets admitted, yes, something occurred at one of our facilities in the city of Chernobyl. You see, April 26, 1986 could have just been just another day in the life of otherwise forever unknown nuclear scientist Cliff Robinson. Yet, it fell upon him to discover the biggest nuclear accident in history up to that point. Years later, interestingly, he would downplay his importance by saying, I didn't discover it. I just happened to be there. And then as you look to our text this evening, you realize that 
What he just said could have easily been Joseph and Mary's recollection of the birth of their firstborn son, who would grow up to be God's promised Messiah. We just happen to be there. Because isn't that somewhat, at least to some extent, how Luke describes that seemingly yet eventful night, seemingly random yet eventful night? It was just another ordinary day in the life of this couple until Mary's water broke and the fabric of the created reality was forever changed. And at this point, given the text and what I've just said, some of you might be questioning the timing of the sermon. One of you have already, already asked me this week, aren't you giving away the punchline of Advent almost a bit too early? Oh, yes, of course, but also no, I believe. Because while it's easy for most of us in the West to confine Jesus' birth to the end of December, and all are thinking about it, Scripture's witness points us in another direction. I believe the inspired account opens a window for us to see that our plans for our lives and what we think what should happen when are not the same as God's. Yet, this is not a problem, quite the contrary. In summary, I believe Luke 2 teaches us that in Jesus, God meets us where we are and when we are in the usual messiness of our daily lives. Again, in Jesus, God meets us when and where we are in the usual messiness of our daily lives. We'll see that in three points this evening. The first one in verses one through three, Jesus came in the middle of history. Jesus came in the middle of history, verses one through three. Gaius Octavianus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Growing up in stature and power in the Roman courts, he became the first Roman emperor in 27 BC after defeating the other postulant to the throne, Mark Anthony, and his famous wife, Cleopatra, in Egypt. Octavian, as he was mostly known, became the first Caesar to be called Augustus, setting him apart as a true Roman dictator. And as we read today, it is with this guy, Caesar Augustus, the title of Octavian, that Dr. Luke begins his account of the night Jesus was born. And tonight, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that we meet Caesar Augustus doing what the great Roman emperors did best, raising taxes. He calls for a census-like registration throughout the known world so he can tax their income appropriately and then fund his successful imperial endeavors. Given the vastness of this empire, which Luke just describes it as the all the world, as you could see in verse 1, the great Caesar needed trusted bureaucrats to help him run this machine. So Luke also mentions for us Quirinius, the governor of Syria. 
a region to which the province of Judea had been added for the purposes of the census. According to Jew Jewish historian Josephus, it's almost as he's saying, the city of Bethlehem under the county of Syria, something like that. So you see, the first three verses of Luke 2 give us the documented historical circumstances that led to Jesus' birth. In the words of a commentator, all it took was a word from the emperor and people thousands of miles away were set in motion. Yet, while we could simply brush aside the importance of these names, dates, and decrees as a mere setting of the stage to the real story to begin, I believe a profound point is being made here by Luke. You see, some 80 verses ago, Luke opened his book by telling his readers that he intended to give an orderly account of what took place in that region at that time surrounding the man, Jesus Christ. Why he would do that? You read Luke 1.4, he says, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You've heard about it. Now let me tell you the story. And it's a very well-documented story. So it could have been just another imperial census. As the text indicates, this was the first one, implying there were more. It could have been just another dictator making the lives of his people a bit more inconvenient than necessary on a mere whim. It could have been just another bureaucrat doing bureaucratic stuff. But on the other hand, I believe these verses tell us that the birth of Jesus was not a mere mythological tale of a spiritual reality happening in a cosmic dimension as so much of the world's religions talk about their myths of saviors, etc. Quite the contrary. The incarnation of Jesus, Luke tells us, God becoming man the eternal becoming temporal was so concrete and tangible and real and close to our lives that it was shaped by Texas. It does not get more mundane, so to speak, than this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of the Roman Empire's IRS. So you see, the birth of Jesus amongst other things, happens in the midst of an executive act of a politician. Which is, when you think about that, a life in the midst of an executive act of a politician is a massively sad way to describe our own lives, isn't it? Whether we eat, we eat or we drink, we are always under the power of some random authority who can annoy, disturb, and even threaten our lives with a stroke of a pen. However, and as we saw a couple of times throughout the book of Esther in the summer earlier this year, tonight we see again how God, the ultimate and most sovereign authority of all of them, uses even these bureaucratic means to achieve his purposes. Because it was an empire-wide decree that forced Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem 
So Jesus would be born there, and because of that, it fulfills prophecies such as Micah, Micah 5.2 that says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So in these three little set-up verses, little did, did Caesar Augustus, the self-proclaimed divine ruler of the known world, know that by ordering the empire-wide registration, God used him to bring forth the truly divine ruler of the entire universe. In the words of former Trinity Church intern Dr. Phil Riken, God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate so that the real Savior would stand alone as the King of Kings. So this is the first and great comfort for us tonight from this passage. Because as we live our tax-filled lives at the mercy of whoever is in power, we are assured that God controls even then. He controls everything and everyone, from the taxes we pay to the decrees issued by influential people. Nothing happens in this world by chance. Everything is a tool for him to achieve his purposes. Which leads us then to our second point this evening. We see that in verses 4 through 5, Jesus came in the middle of redemption history. First point, we saw that Jesus came in the middle of history. Now we see that he came in the middle of redemption history. Again, verses 4 and 5. Because although we talk about politics and government and seemingly coincidences of where Jesus was born, as we are reminded by the season around us, of course God had a particular purpose in mind when through the power of the Spirit he weaved the second person of the Trinity within, within Mary's womb. In verses 4 and 5, we're reminded of that. Luke tells us that the baby about to be born came from the royal line of David. In 1 Samuel 17, if you want to check later, we read twice that David's father Jesse was a Bethlehemite. He was a native of Bethlehem. So Joseph and his very pregnant bride had to travel somewhat some 80 miles south from Nazareth to Bethlehem, probably on foot, maybe on a donkey, because this Galilean carpenter was a descendant of the great Israelite king of old. So he had to be registered where David was born. And that's what bring them, brings them to Bethlehem. So in the process of tightening his grip on his huge empire, says another commentator, Octavian, Octavian so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the, all the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. 
So we see that on top of that historical aspect of Jesus' birth, his royal lineage tells us that Jesus was born not only within human history at large, but also as a culmination of millennia of promises that God, that God had made specifically for his people and their salvation. So we see, for example, 2 Samuel 7, God tells David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. While parts of this promise had an immediate fulfillment in Solomon, David's son who built the temple, it is also pointing us to a future descendant who would forever will rule God's kingdom. And this hope of the eternal son of David, which, of which we heard a little bit this morning, permeates the entire Old Testament. Here's how the prophet Isaiah spoke of the Messiah. He says in Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jeremiah then adds to the choir, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So these seemingly randomness of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth as his parents lived, and of all people a descendant of David, shows us how God's plan for redemption cannot be stopped. He will again use every means, every coincidence, every scenario, and every historical circumstance to bring about the salvation of his people through his son. Like Cliff Robertson, alerting the known world of the Chernobyl disaster because a casual trip to the cafeteria, it pleased God to use a famous Roman emperor, a brave carpenter, and his godly young bride to bring about his plan of salvation to this world. The seemingly inconvenient trip to fill out an IRS form was the culmination of God's eternal plans to restore fallen sinners to himself. Broken people living under the reign of darkness and bring them under the reign of a king of righteousness and justice and peace whose reign has no end. To paraphrase an old theologian, Christ was born, that is history. Christ was born for you and me, that is doctrine. And without these two elements, joined in an absolute, indissolu absolutely indissoluble union, sorry about that, there is no Christianity. And this is what we just saw in this handful of verses. History 
and doctrine. It was real. And it was for you and me, is what we saw. The mundane and coincidental circumstances of Jesus' birth bring us much comfort then as we realize that God is faithful to his promises. How many of them were fulfilled in Jesus? Hint, all of them. This should strengthen our hope then that he who began a good work in you, as Paul tells us, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He promised he will fulfill. And yes, as I have been talking about the coming of Jesus in history, on the one hand, and as the fulfillment of God's redemptive plans, on the other hand, includes you and me. These, this leads us to our final point tonight. Jesus came to us in the middle of our stories. We see that in verses 6 and 7. Jesus came, Jesus came to us in the middle of our stories. As they made that long and arduous trip, the time came. The water broke. Contractions lasting about 30 to 70 seconds, coming about 5 to 10 minutes apart. It is time. While the text doesn't mention we have no reason to believe it was not painful and there was a lot of screaming and a lot of blood. Push, Mary, push. Someone should have said. But while the birth of a child can be scary enough for nurses nowadays to put a chair behind the husband in the case he passes out, the simplicity with which Luke describes the birth of the Son of God is somewhat shocking. The time came, she gave birth. That's it. And it is shocking because, as we all know, this baby is way more than just the firstborn son of a Galilean carpenter. Dr. Riken is useful again here. He says, quote, He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the supreme ruler of all that lives. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. This baby born in Bethlehem, is the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and all-glorious Son of God. And we read, the time came and he was born. That's it. And while he was all of that, there he lays in poor people's clothing, in a manger where animals fed on and our text concludes we re, as the text concludes we read then to conclude this poor picture that this was the case because there was no room for them in the guest room and here we begin a parenthesis and some years ago I taught a Sunday school class here at Trinity Church about common Christmas myths and some of you might remember when I spent a whole class discussing the infamous in of verse 7. So let's 
recap some of that. In summary, to make it short for you, the word translated here on verse 7 as in, in the original Greek, just as, as I'll give you two examples. In the sa- it's the same word that Luke uses in chapter 22 in the narrative of the Last Supper when we read, quote, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then, when Luke talks about a regular commercial holiday inn-like kind of place in Luke 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Samaritan, he uses an entirely different word in Greek. All I'm saying is this word should be translated as guest room, not inn. And I can see by some faces that probably some of you are thinking, what difference does that make? Isn't the point of the no vacancy image to say that people did not welcome Jesus properly? Does it make a difference if it was a guest room or an inn? Well, that is, yes, the point. But I think a better translation as guest room can help us go even deeper into the meaning of that, that passage. And so you can visualize this inn slash guest room confusion so you can picture what I'm trying to get at with this. Let me take you on a quick tour of my former apartment, the apartment Maria and I used to live before the men's. That apartment had only one bedroom. So the only other room in the apartment doubled as both living and dining room. Therefore, if a guest happened to go into labor while visiting us, it is quite possible to imagine their baby lying on our small dining table right by our TV because there was no room for them in the bedroom because Maria and I would be there. So this is probably what happened to Joseph and Mary. They were staying in the common living area that any average house in Judea of that time would have had, which also included an open entrance for the family animals to stay inside during the night. That's why they had a manger probably not very unlike that one, for the animals to come. The point is, Jesus was not born outside of people's views, in a cave or in an outhouse. He was born right here, in the middle of everyone, of family, of guests, and of animals. Dr. Reich, and one last time on the significance of this type of birth, the God of the universe entered into our situation. He did not save us from a distance, but came as close to us as possible so as to sympathize with us in our sufferings. The point is that I'm trying to make Luke is showing us that Jesus was born in the thick of life, in the middle of the house, in the middle of a trip to fill out a tax form. Old Roman poets had a Latin phrase for this kind of thing. They call it in media res, which translates as literally in the middle of things. It describes stories that begin in the middle of the action 
and only later you can pierce together the beginning before you hit the end. And this is why I wanted to discuss the incarnation so far away from Christmas time. I believe many of us will spend this month in anticipation, yes, of a Christmas celebration, but in anticipation of a Christmas celebration alone, without family or friends, perhaps in the absence of a loved one, surrounded by painful memories, or by the dark clouds of pain that being in the middle of a broken family can accentuate so much this time of the year. Tonight, let Luke remind you, if that's your case, that Jesus was born in media res. He came to us in the middle of our things, our history, our longing for salvation, in the middle of our messy and inconvenient lives. And then because Jesus came to us in the middle of such circumstances, we can also now then go to him in media res, in the middle of our fears, of our doubts, of our pains, knowing that he knows them all too well because he lived them. We are reminded tonight, and we should be, and I believe we are reminded of this every single Sunday when we hear the word of God that he was made human like us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was tempted as we are in every aspect, yet unlike all of us without sin. So this is Christ the King laying in Mary's lap, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, the King who triumphed over sin and death, those things that can hurt us so much at this time of the year, and, who, and, and that constantly alienate us from God and from his blessings. That's why we should be thinking about that birth every Sunday, not just on December 24. That's why, and I close with these words from Martin Luther, Whenever you think about your salvation, you must run directly to the manger and the mother's womb. Embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms and look at him. Born, being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, and ascending above all the heavens and having authority over all things. Haste, haste to bring him laud, I would add. Let us pray. Lord, make our service acceptable to you while we live and our souls ready for you when we die. As long as we are in the world, keep us from the evil of it and from the snares and dangers to which we are constant, continually exposed in our passage through it. Make our pilgrimage to the unchangeable glories of life everlasting, safe and sure, through all troubles, changes, and temptations. Be merciful to us this day, 
Keep us all, keep us in all our ways and put your love into our hearts that we may not depart from you. Bless and preserve us in our going out and coming in. In Jesus' name we pray this and together we say, amen.